Well, we return to our uh, study today of biblical theology. Please turn your Bible to Ephesians 2, as we've been peering into the beginning of the creation account, the first opening chapters of Genesis, and seeing really that the things we see there are, are found throughout the whole Bible, and, and many find their terminus, their end, in the new creation. How does God take this sin-polluted world from creation to new creation? And we're going to begin, and this will be our base text here today, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin in verse 19. Ephesians 2 and 19, it's always good to see the church with their heads down in their Bibles, looking at the Word. Ephesians 2 and 19, take heed, church, how you hear the Word today. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give you thanks for your word. We do give you thanks for the preaching of the word that you Give us this day to hear the word proclaimed. And so, God, we, we pray earnestly that the word would be proclaimed faithfully today. That the word would be proclaimed according to scripture. God, I pray if there's any falsehood or error or any of my own inventions in this message that it might fall on deaf ears. Would you, would you grant a great measure of your spirit for the speaker? Lord, that I might be strengthened to speak as I ought and be bold to declare the things that you've brought today. We also pray for a great measure of your spirit to the hearer, Lord, that our minds would be focused, that our ears would be open and attentive, that we might approach you as we learned in Sunday school today with a posture of, of humility, a posture of grace and, um, and need, Lord, a willingness to obey and believe the things we hear as they, as they are found in your word. And so help us now, be with us, Lord, um, have your way in this place. We ask that in Christ's holy name, amen. Well, about a month or so ago now, we went to the end of the story, you may remember, we went to Revelation 21, and we really went there to see the end and to ask God a question. And the question that we asked him or that we were trying to understand is what is the greatest hope for the Christian? What is it that we're looking forward to? Where does the Bible end? And what is God doing in all of the many things that he has done from the beginning of creation? What is the point of it all? Where is he taking us? And we read there, John, as he sees these visions, as he's given this revelation. We read from Revelation 21. Let me read that to you in verse 3. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne." So this is a proclamation from the throne itself, from God's throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with him, them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will, sh will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Won't that be a glorious day when... Mourning and death and crying and pain will be former things that have passed away. And we saw there that that's the, the hope of the Christian. It is eternity in the very presence of God, where heaven and earth are united as one, and the whole earth will be God's temple because he will dwell with us there. Righteousness will reign across the earth. And we then went back to the beginning of the Bible and we saw that things began very similarly in the Garden of Eden. We had a holy people in a holy place, dwelling with a holy God in worshipful communion. There was no sin, there was no mourning, there was no pain, there was no death. 
And we discern then that Eden was something of a, of a garden temple, a garden sanctuary, the, the, the first one even. But of course, that state didn't last long. Man fell from the state wherein he was created. Sin causes Adam and Eve to be expelled from God's garden sanctuary, cast off from his holy presence. But what we saw as we've been walking through this theme is that very quickly in the biblical narrative, God begins a process of restoration. He begins to restore his temple presence with his people. We begin with Abraham, promised a people and a place, and we saw that while the people and the place is wonderful, even better is the promise that God will be the God of those people, and God will be with them in that place. We saw that that temple presence of God, that restoration increase as the tabernacle was constructed. Now there was a physical place where man could go to know of God's presence, where God promised to be there in the camp. Atonement was made for sin there. Offerings were brought. That, that tabernacle was made permanent, was fixed in the temple, a temple of stones and gold. Now there was a place in Jerusalem where, where the Jews knew this is where God dwells with us. But again, because of sin, they're exiled from God's place. The temple is actually destroyed and turned into rubble And they're cast off into captivity in Babylon. And God again restores, because He's a gracious God. He brings them back into the land. The temple is rebuilt. The walls of the city are rebuilt. But it seems that that second temple never captures the Old Testament hope of a future glorious temple to which the nations will come and gather to worship. The glory of God never returns to the temple as it did in Solomon's temple. We saw as Emmanuel came on the scene that Jesus actually fulfilled the purpose of that temple. He is the one that came to tabernacle among us. He is the true sacrifice, the true atonement for sin. He embodies all that the priesthood set out to foreshadow. So Jesus fulfilled the purpose of that temporary temple. He actually accomplished what the blood of bulls and goats never truly accomplished. But Jesus only walked on this earth for one generation. He only lived here for 33 years, and now he's at the right hand of his father. So where does God dwell today? Should we today be expecting another temple to be built that the nations will come to and gather to worship God? Well, we saw in our study of the book of Acts, which we will eventually get back to, we saw something happens profound at the day of Pentecost. That the place where God dwells, as He poured out His Spirit from on high, Jesus did, that the place where God dwells on the earth changed. No longer does God dwell in a sanctuary made by His people, but now the people become the sanctuary, as He now dwells within His church. So Jesus did come to build a new temple. Jesus is this day building a holy temple, but it is not on a mountain in Jerusalem. It is the people of the living God. The church is the new temple that Christ is building. And so my thesis today is this, because the church is the end times temple that God is building, we must take great care in how we are being built up. Because the church is the end times temple that God is building, we must take great care in how we are building up. And we'll see this in three headings today. Firstly then, we must build, as we take great care, we must build on the correct foundation with the correct materials. We must build on the correct foundation with the correct materials. As we go back to Ephesians 2, I want to read up the page a bit just to see the context a bit more. If we look at verse 14 of Ephesians 2, and we read there, He Himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one. Who is that? 
Jew and Gentile, right? Jew and Gentile, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. That is the sacrificial system, the ceremonial laws have been abrogated, abolished in Christ. He's fulfilled them. Those were expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. And so Paul is telling us of the great reconciling work that God is doing in Christ. That the Jewish flavor, if you will, of Old, of Old Testament religion is no longer the faith of God today. That the old system was typological, it was temporary, it was shadowy, it pointed to better things that were to come, and the better has come ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. And that hatred, that animosity, that division that Jew and Gentile had has been erased. Now, we would wish that in this fallen world this would be completely true today, right? There is still hostility between Jew and Gentile, and between Jew and Jew, and between Gentile and Gentile. But his point is that in the church, there's one people of God. There is not those of Israel and those of the church, but there is only those that are in Christ. We've been brought into the fold, brought into that family, grafted in, and we are now His. We talked about the wonderful doctrine of adoption this past Wednesday night, and we learned there of our gracious Father in heaven that has made us his sons and daughters. You can find that, if you like, on the website. But verse 19, then, where we read, let's pick up there. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built... On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So God has brought us together to be citizens and saints, members of this household, and we are now being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. And I've said we must build on the correct foundation with the correct materials. Some of you are able to go into the kitchen and you're just sort of naturals. Or maybe you've, it's a skill that you've acquired over time. Uh, but some of you are able to go into the kitchen and take a recipe and substitute this and substitute that and say, our family doesn't eat this and I'll dash in a little bit of this. Or my wife always amazes me when I say, how did you make this? And she says, I don't know, I just threw in a little bit of this and a little bit of that, whatever felt right. It's just a, it's a natural gift or a natural a skill. But I'm in the kitchen with little measuring spoons if I ever would cook something and being very precise because I'm not getting off of the directions or it's not, going to be, it's not going to be good. But some of you have that gift to make substitutes as at will and it, it works somehow. But when it comes to the church... Paul says there are no substitutes to be made. We're not to bring in our own ingredients, our own ideas, because we've been given the foundation and we've been given the raw materials from which we are to build. It's like the construction worker, the builder that, that shows up on the site. He's going to build a home. The foundation has been laid. The concrete has set up. The forms have been removed. And all of the materials are there for the house. Everything's ready for him. Here's the foundation. It's laid. It doesn't need to be touched. And the materials from which the house is built are there ready to be used. And we too then are to build upon the foundation that Christ and the apostles have laid with the raw materials they've given us. Christ, then we read, must be the, the anchor, the centerpiece, the cornerstone, as the text says. 
We will only build this temple, if you will. We will only build this temple rightly if we are placing Christ at the center and as the head. This is the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's his church, his bride. He owns us. He is the cornerstone. And the apostles are the foundation. And we've been given their raw materials, namely the inscripturated word of God. Right? We've been given their raw materials by which this temple is to be built. So the idea there, then, I think is just plain, is that our, 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 um, our work is to conform all that we do according to Scripture. Right? According to what the apostles and prophets have set before us in God's Word. And that means sometimes, which is hard in churches, that means sometimes that traditions of men or or long-standing practices that are beloved by God's people in a church um, that we deem unbiblical need to go, right? They need to be cast aside. I think there's a challenge for us in churches at times to discern tradition versus faithfulness to the Word. And sometimes when there's something that we've done in the church for a very long time, we sort of assume that this is the right thing because this is what we've always done or this is what we've always known or this is what pastor so-and-so that I love and respect always did. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it was a biblical practice. That's why we as a church are seeking to move to a plurality of elders. Right? Not because we're not looking and saying, what has been the tradition of Baptist churches in the last hundred years? That's not our question, right? Our question is, what does the Bible say a New Testament church is to look like? And whatever in our church does not look like that, we should seek to reform it, right? Seek to change it. And so we're called to build this temple. We, we take part in this process and and Paul warns us that we ought to build carefully or thoughtfully. If you turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 3, which is another one of these New Testament texts that talk about uh, the church being a temple. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder... I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. I think those are words that we need to heed and, and feel a sense of weightiness, that we must take care how we build upon the foundation that we've been given. It's incumbent then upon the ministers of the church to pay special attention to the word, to sound doctrine to building the church in such a way that God has instructed us. It's easy today, especially with all of our modern quote-unquote resources, it's easy to get cute or creative or fresh or move on to new things, new models, new practices, new ways to build a church, new ways to make disciples. There are a million different businesses out there. I'm sure many of them are well-meaning but that want to come alongside the church and, and do the work of the church for us, even to the point of digital research helps where you can pay someone to basically write your sermons for you because pastors are busy men these days that wear many hats. And so who has time for studying the word? And I, we would be shocked at many of the celebrity pastors that have businesses doing the research for them, presenting them with an outline that they then just sort of make their own. Now, we all use resources, but there's a line maybe there that's being crossed. But we must build carefully. Paul says, let each one take care how he builds upon this foundation. This is also why we think it wise for us as a church to eventually adopt the 1689 Confession. This is why I'm taking probably more than a year, Wednesday nights, to teach through the confession, chapter by chapter, so you can understand the things there, so that hopefully you will see the good and the benefit for us as a church to have a robust theological identity 
that we believe rightly summarizes the Bible. With all of our modern ideas, it's nice to go back to the book of Acts at time and just see the simplicity of the church. Now, you may remember when we studied that book that I said there are texts that are descriptive and texts that are prescriptive. Some of them just describe what they do, did, and some of them prescribe what we should do. And we need to be careful not to make the book of Acts a technical church handbook as if we are to practice every single thing they did. Some have done that and they would tell us then that we should only have churches in our homes because that's what they did in their day. Um, I think that's a description of what they did out of necessity, not necessarily a command that we must follow today. Nothing wrong with the biblical house church. But listen to what happens. At the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out. Peter is preaching. God owns the sermon. He works in the souls of, uh, of the people. And the, the church transforms from a manageable number for 11 apostles of about 120 that were waiting there in the room to 3,000 souls being converted. A megachurch explodes in Jerusalem. Acts 2.41, those who received the word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So what do they do? What is it that they do when all these people come into the church? Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. You see this simple ministry, simple means of grace. They committed themselves to the word. Now, we need to acknowledge that this did not exist at that time in its present form. The apostles were still living and still speaking. Their teaching was being written down. But nonetheless, they were taught the teaching of the apostles and they committed themselves to the word. They labored in it, but they also committed themselves to one another, to the fellowship. They were devoted to be together. And so careful building of Christ's church demands that we commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Certainly this begins with the elders. It begins with those that preach and teach, those that are called to lead and shepherd. But I don't think that it ends there, this building of the church with these proper materials. So what are some ways that you as church members, all of us as the body of Christ, aid in the building up of the church with the raw materials that God has given us? I think firstly, we begin by seeking to cultivate an appetite for biblical truth. Cultivate an appetite for biblical truth. Would we agree that we want to move on in this life from milk? Amen? We want to move on from milk, right? We want to make progress. We want to grow in maturity. We want to grow in understanding. We want to grow in discernment. We don't applaud the child that is now 12 or 14 years old that is still saying 2 plus 2 equals 4. We expect them at that age to have moved on from some of those basic things, to grow in a greater understanding, to, to be able to engage with deeper concepts and deeper ideas. And so we want to, as Christians, move on from milk. We want to cultivate then an appetite for biblical truth. Maybe there's just not a hunger there. Maybe your eyes glaze over when people start speaking about theology and doctrine. Maybe we need to challenge ourselves here a bit. All of us can challenge ourselves wherever we are. Um, I think very simply for us together as a church, one way that we can cultivate an appetite for biblical truth is by joining here at Wednesday night and thinking about the theology of the Bible as it's presented in the London Baptist Confession. I've encouraged you to grab a copy and put it with your Bible and read a chapter or even a paragraph Every time you open up the scriptures and grow an understanding of the summary of biblical teaching. I hope that you've been seeing, those that have attended Wednesday, just a, the blessing of biblical doctrine. The assurance that we can have when the storms come. Maybe you're like me and you've said, you know, I'm just not, I'm not a reader. I don't like to read. I don't appreciate reading. Most of my life, books were the last thing that I ever wanted to, to pick up. I think I made it somehow through high school without finishing one assigned reading book. Don't do that, young people. 
read. But if you're like me and struggled to read, struggled to profit, struggled to understand maybe, um, we have little pamphlets out on that back table. I should have said something. About a month ago, they were refreshed. So if you walk by and think they're the same old thing, many are new. But they're very brief, very short, and they're very helpful introductions to various topics that are met, that are, that are met, that are meant for the person in the pew to, to be of a help to churchmen. And so I commend to you one of those. Grab one, open it up, read a few pages a day, chew on what, what it says, and, and, and press on in, in sort of cultivating this appetite. Another way that we can aid the church in the uh, building of this temple with the raw materials we've been given is by making our homes training grounds, or as the old men would say, schools of Christ. Um, this begins with the brethren, with the men. Amen, brothers? This is on you, and I want to encourage you not to neglect this duty if you at this time don't have children in the home. You know, sometimes I think we're tempted to think that, that family worship, our home discipleship, is for the dads that have little ones running around in the house. But it should begin long before that, right? It should begin before there's children, or if there ever will be children. Um, we've been given this duty to, to make our homes, as we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when you sit, when you lie, when you go about the way, have these words in your mouth. We've talked about this plenty in the past. You know, there's formal instruction where you sit down and say, let's read together, let's open the word. And then there's just the natural throughout the day, applying biblical truth to the things of life, bringing in gospel opportunities that we want to grow in weaving those into our lives. But, ladies, if there's no man present or no man willing, this falls on you to take up the word in the home and to spiritually lead as God gives you ability. So we aid in this temple building of the church with these raw materials when we use our homes as schools of Christ so that we all are better equipped in the ministry. Another way we do this is by passing the faith down to the next generation. Now, I know this is ultimately God's, God's um, He does this, but He uses us. Amen? If we don't have this burden and this vision to see the faith passed down to the next generation, then the church in this country will die. Now, I didn't say the church will die. God will never let the church die. But certainly, as men abdicate their duty, and as uh, a nation loves evil, God at times relents and says, have your way and bear the bitter fruit of your wickedness. We want to pass down the baton of the faith to the next generation. And I'm not just speaking to the dads and moms here, but we collectively, as the temple that Christ is building, ought to want to share in this burden. That the Christian faith be handed to these little ones. They need to see, our young people need to see, godly, faithful, warm Christians that actually believe the Bible and live out the faith. Amen? Because everywhere else in the world, church, they're going to hear that this is ridiculous or hateful or bigoted, that it's nonsensical to actually imagine that one would still hold to these truths today. They're going to be hearing awful things about the church and about Christians and about the things that we believe everywhere else in the world. And they need to come here to the church and see warm-hearted Christians that actually apply the truths of Scripture to their lives and actually smile about it, delight in the things of God, can have warm-hearted fellowship. We're not, just, we're not just grumpy Puritans that never smile or have a good time, as the caricature likes to say. And so we want to see the faith handed down, to see this temple built. And fourthly, we build this temple with the right materials as we seek to expand it throughout the world. God no longer dwells in only Jerusalem. God no longer dwells in a mobile tent. God no longer dwells in a tabernacle. He dwells within His church. And thus, central to our mission, central to the Great Commission, is to see this temple being built. 
And so let us take the raw materials of the law and the gospel and seek to expand God's growing temple. So because the church is the end times temple that he is building, we must build on the correct foundation, Christ, and with the correct materials. Secondly, we must join and be built together. We must join and be built together. If you look back at Ephesians 2.21, in the text that we started with, Christ is the cornerstone. And in Him, in whom, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So you notice there is this joining together and growing together. The Bible does speak about us as individuals being, our, our bodies being a temple to the Lord, it does. But usually it speaks of the church collectively or the church corporately. It speaks of us joining together, growing together. A temple is not one stone, but it's many stones. One author says that Paul pictures here each local church as providing God with a spiritual habitation in that locality. So if we carry the metaphor, we might say that First Baptist Church in, in Phoenix is a, is a temple of Jesus Christ. Not the building, but the people. Because God dwells within the people. And He is building up a living temple here at FBC. I think this verse shows us the centrality of the local church in the life of a Christian. We're being built together. We're being joined together. This is a, a communal work that God does. As believers commit to Jesus, but also then commit to serve Jesus in a covenanted community. G.K. Beale, who's written a lot on the temple and the church's mission, points out a good point, I think, here. When he says that the temple stones, back in the day, if you will, there was no mortar. There was no concrete. There were no fasteners. And so stones, massive stones, would be carved and hewn and shaved down so that they would fit together perfectly. There's still the, uh, the Wailing Wall, I believe, the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And you can go there and you'll see many Jews standing before that wall praying staring at a wall, but if you look at the wall, it is massive stones that are fit together, just stacked on top of each other, sort of how we would stack um, a retaining wall, sort of lawn, you know, stones in your, in your yard. These stones have to be shaved down. They have to be shaped. They have to be formed so that as they fit together perfectly with no mortar, they become something far more glorious than they were on their own. There's something beautiful that is made when these stones are shaped and hewn down and forged and brought together that they might grow into this mighty structure. And the Lord calls us then to join together, but we have to be shaved down a bit to fit, right? We have to be formed and hewn, and this work, it hurts, Right? When God removes those sharp edges that we all have, it can be a painful experience. But I think we would acknowledge that it's a long-term work that God is doing. If you think about the norm today in the church, as Paul here says that we are being built together and joined together, the norm it seems today in the church, and specifically in our context, the West Coast and the Pacific Northwest, we have a very casual attitude, a laissez-faire attitude. We don't like commitment. We don't like authority. Church membership is sort of taboo in this region. It's, it's, it's been long lost. So people are sort of confused when we talk about church membership. But the norm today, really, is, is if I am in the church and I get offended, maybe someone's rude to me, or maybe the pastor doesn't give me the attention, sufficient attention that I deem is proper. Or maybe they don't sing my favorite song enough. Someone's rude to me. Or I disagree on some secondary or third tier doctrine. 
What do we normally do? Move on down the street and move on to another church and do that again and do that again and do that again. But Paul, in Ephesians 4, gets into the application of what it means to be built together as these stones shave down and fit form that we might come together like a puzzle piece. When we come together initially, there's no fitting pieces in the puzzle in the church because we're all out of shape and need to be conformed. But listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 1. Chapters 1 through 3 are really the theology that undergirds chapters 4 through 6, which is the practical expression of these things. Ephesians 4.1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So there's a way that you and I, as living stones of God's holy temple, can walk unworthy. Amen? Unworthy of this calling. But what we ought to do, though, he says, is to walk, then, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you see what Paul gets at? Right when he talks about life in the church, he really gives us a radical call to unity, a radical call to humility, that we're to bear with the weaknesses and the annoyances and the idiosyncrasies of those around us. That we are to be eager to maintain unity. Fight for unity, if you will. Die to self so the church can be formed and fit together as one. I think it might be helpful for us to consider here how this happens. How is it that God commonly matures Christians? Well, He does that in the context of human relationships. Or He does that as we one another together. If you think about the Fruit of the Spirit, in the book of Galatians, many of those are challenging to exercise on an island by yourself. Right? They happen in community. They happen with other people around us. And so often as we face adversity in our relationships, God is teaching us patience. He's teaching us to be gracious with one another. He's teaching us how to really love, how to deny ourselves, how to be generous. But I think the truth here is evident, beloved. If our temptation is to run every time there's a hardship, every time there's uh, a difficulty, to, to leave a church, or when our job is challenging and we don't like the boss today, to find another job, or when a relationship gets tough, to sever ties, or when our children face some adversity at school, to bring them to another school, we deprive ourselves of that sanctifying work that God is seeking to do. If every time I get frustrated and move on to another church, I'm always going to be that sharp, rough-edged stone that is not polished down. Uh, when I was a kid, I lived with my cousin, whose name is Sean. We've been praying for him recently. And Sean wanted a rock polisher. Has anybody ever had one of these things? <laughs> they were all the rage back in the 80s or maybe before that as well. And so we got one of these rock polishers, and we quickly learned one thing as an aside. It needed to be in the garage because this thing is loud, right? And it runs 24-7. And you put some rocks in there, and you put some sand and some water or whatever, and it just spins, and it just spins. Well, what do we do? We're kids. We go out there the next day. And we're expecting this beautiful gem thing that the box shows, these wonderful-looking rocks that have been hewned and polished down. And to our dissatisfaction, they looked exactly the same. And so we let it run for a couple more days, and we saw that it, there was no change. And we quickly learned that it takes a long time for the rocks to look like that piece of glass you find at the creek that's all polished and soft-edged. And I bring that up to say this is the long, slow work that God does as He's polishing the stones of His temple. It doesn't happen overnight. And it happens when we press in together and allow the challenges to be uh, things that forge us into newer creations, if you will, uh, that we grow in grace. And so I encourage you here, and I, uh, and, I, and I say this often, but I encourage you, 
in light of this, beloved, to plant deep roots, to invest yourself in the people around you that God has placed in your life. If this is your church, I encourage you to to become a member here, to settle in here, to covenant with those around you. I encourage you to think of terms, not of next year, but in decades, in 10 years, 20 years. You know, the world around us is moving 100 miles an hour, and the church is one of the few places that we can reject all of that, slow down, and and stop the fast-paced, transient life. And so because the church is the temple that God is building, we must join and be built together. That means that those around us that sometimes might rub us the wrong way are actually for our good, right? That we might be more conformed to Jesus. Thirdly, because the church is the end times temple that God is building, we must work to purify God's dwelling. We must work to purify God's dwelling. Ephesians 2 and 22, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, if we've learned anything as we've talked about God's presence with His people, we've learned that that place must be holy, right? Eden was holy because there was no sin there. But as soon as sin came in, either God had to go or man had to go. And man was exiled from that place. We saw in the tabernacle that God would dwell with His people, but blood had to be shed. Animals had to die. That place had to be sanctified for God to even be there in the midst of His people. And so this temple that God is building is to be holy. It is to be pure. Turn, please, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, another one of these main texts that we have that talk about the church as a temple. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now we usually use this text for marriage, right? When we say don't marry out of the faith, and that's a good application, but I think it's broader than that. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Firstly, as we seek to purify God's dwelling... That ought to be done in the purity of our worship. The purity of our worship. If there's one thing that's sacred in this world, it's the worship of the living God. The way that we approach God on the Lord's Day, and then subsequently on the other days of the week in our homes, communicates much about what we think about God. And you may remember the story from Leviticus chapter 10, where Nadab and Abihu... They did not do anything that God forbade. They simply did not come before God as He had commanded. And it was there that day that they died at the hand of the Lord. How the church of Jesus Christ worships God, speaks of God, handles His Word, administers the sacraments, all communicates something about the God that we worship. And I like what Beale says here. He says, the church is not like a temple. The church is the temple in the New Covenant era. The church is the proper fulfillment of the Old Testament hope of a temple where the nations would come to worship God. And if that is true, then we must seek to remove all that is unclean from Christ's temple. We must labor to minister before Him rightly and faithfully. This is why you often hear me. Maybe I'm just a critical pastor. But this is why you often hear me lamenting about the state of worship in this country. Because there are many things happening broadly in the evangelical world and more narrowly here in this valley 
that are an offense to the living God, the holy temple of His church. This is why Scripture regulating our worship is so vital. That we conform to the Word. Human wisdom, human philosophy, if it does not accord with the Bible, must go. Not worldly practices or worldly influences must go. Borrowing our ministry philosophy from corporate America must be rejected if it's not in line with the teaching of the Bible. We also work to purify God's dwelling, not only in the purity of our worship, but in the purity of our lives. Look what he says in verse 16. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from them, he says. As living stones, we make up the temple of the living God. That means that each of us as individuals, as households, and as a local church, God says, are to seek to live holy lives before a holy God and before an unholy world. And we see firstly here that there is a distinct separation. A distinct separation. Now, the church has wrestled with what does this separation look like? Right? Jesus says you are to be in the world, but not of the world. And he said, uh, Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians, when he writes them to put out the, the, those in the church that are sinning in church discipline, um, he, he corrects them and says, I didn't tell you not to eat with liars and thieves uh, in the world. Because you'd have to leave the world. I said, don't, don't commune with those in the church that practice such things. Now, we've, we've gotten this wrong, I think, often. Some have said we want to be just like the world because we want to win them. So we do everything that they do. We indulge in all of the things of the world and thus we'll be like them and they'll, they'll, they'll like us and we'll be a welcoming people and they'll come in and they'll, they'll get some Jesus. Others have said, like the Amish, we need to do the other extreme and separate ourselves completely from everything in the world. Make our own little communities. Now, if we do that, beloved, we better be passing down the faith to our children or we're going to shrivel up and be gone in a generation or two. No, God says we need to bring the gospel into conflict with a hostile world. But how do we then be distinct? How do we be separated faithfully while still engaging with a lost world? I think... A question for us helps here. The question really is, am I the one that's being conformed to the world? Right? With my engagement in the world, with the, the things that I embrace in a daily, the things I interact with, am I so engaged in worldly ideas that I'm the one that's being shaped and conformed to that thinking? I remember I mentioned earlier Pastor John Smith, and when I began in, back in Rogue River uh, as a youth pastor a number of years ago, he, he gave me some advice beginning that ministry. He said, teach them a Christian worldview. Because there are so many in the church professing believers that profess to know and love Christ and be forgiven of their sin. But when you talk to them about every important matter today, their thinking comes from pagan ideas and not from the church of Jesus Christ. On any issue, any moral issue, they've been swayed by the world. And so the foundation is just not there. The question we might ask is, am I being more shaped by the conservative news pundit with all the shock jock headlines than I am by the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter? Am I being more shaped by the Hollywood gossip rag and the latest scandal on TMZ than I am by Jeremiah or Ezekiel? Scripture calls a holy people to have a, a holy separation from the worldview-forming influence of the world. I think that's where the heart of it is. We can't leave this world, right? If we could, praise God, we would. <laughs> We're here in a fallen age, in a, in, a, in a kingdom of darkness all around us. 
We can't leave the world, and yet we must be distinct. And so we should be the ones that influence, not receive the influence. But secondly, as well, there's a willing sacrifice. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. There are things that other people can do. Boys and girls, you will have friends that do many things that you can't do, that you won't do. And they may not be inherently sinful on the surface, but they're not wise for the Christian. There are many things that we will set aside. Delights of the world that are not beneficial to our growth in Jesus. Things that we will sacrifice. Areas where we will deny ourselves for Christ and for our witness as the temple of the living God. And so the Lord calls us here to a life of self-denial. Right? A life of being distinct and setting aside things that we might otherwise enjoy. Because the church is the end times temple that God is building, we must work to purify God's dwelling. So let me close here. Um, I think it needs to be said, as this has been sort of solemn, that there's much joy to be had in the building of this temple. Amen? Uh, we ought to delight in Christ and in, and in one another. There is much joy in being part of the new creation work that God is doing as we look forward to that day when the whole earth will be pure and clean and righteous. And God's presence in us as the temple that He is building ought to give us much strength and confidence and joy in this world to be faithful in all that He is calling us to do and be. But I do want to leave us with a sense of the weightiness here of this calling a sense of the stewardship that we have because we are the temple of the living God. And so because the church is this eschatological temple that God is building, we must build on the correct foundation with the correct materials. We've been given all that we need for life and godliness. So cultivate, beloved, an appetite for biblical truth. Make your home a training ground of Christ, a school of Christ. Do all that you can to pass down the faith to the next generation. And do the work of expanding this temple throughout the world. Secondly, we must join and be built together. This is not a work that we do on our own. And for us to become those beautiful polished stones on the box of the rock polisher, it takes time. Right? We have to be formed and conformed. It is a long game, long-term work. And if we bounce and hop and leave every time things get difficult or the heat is turned up, we will always be that sort of ugly, sharp-shaped rock that has not been hewn, the puzzle piece that doesn't fit with any puzzle in the community. And thirdly, we must work then to purify God's dwelling. That begins here with the purity of worship, purity of doctrine, but it invades our homes as we seek to purify our lives. Amen. Let's pray.